What? Let's start. So, where are we now in our reading? Have we all finished um, book two? <laughs> Ask a stupid question. How far into book two are we? That would be my question. How far into book two are we? How many people have read the first canto of book two? Okay, then. How many people have read the second canto? Do I hear the sixth canto? Sort of. So the sixth is the sixth is where the um, where where the the uh, sheep and the goats start separating. Um, seven, eight, nine, ten. So you just gave up after ten? Eleven. Twelfth. <laughs> All right. So four. So four of you have finished another seven. Is that basically right? Um, all right. Well, we should um, really. I, I know. I know there were all those snow days, but more time for you to read. So uh, we should. We should sort of be trying to catch up. But uh, even if you're the tw- the thing about um, the fair about book two, the Fairy Queen, is what makes book two really worth it is the last canto. Uh, if I mean, yeah, all of book two is great. It's all great. Everything's great. Um, but really. Uh, what makes book two worth it is the last canto, uh, the Bower of Bliss, uh, which is really something. And uh, so that's, uh, we, we really do need to talk about that. Then also the transition from book two to book three, which we will start talking about. Okay, so here's your assignment for Wednesday. Finish book two um, and read at least the first canto of book three for Wednesday. Uh, we're supposed to have read all of book three this week, but obviously with having skipped two classes already, that won't happen. Um, and we do have those two catch-up weeks. But it's really in book three that Spencer comes into his own. Um, what makes the Fairy Queen not only great, but unbelievably great, um, is what starts happening in book three. And so that's, that's actually where we'll find ourselves slowing down in our reading of Spencer. Um, so just just push on through fairyland until you get there. Okay, so what we were talking about on uh, last Thursday was the extent to uh, which you liked Guyon or didn't. And um, uh, now that you've read at least through Canto 7, it seems like everyone uh, has, or at least everyone here has, um, what do you think of Guyon? How are you thinking about him as a character? Just character. He's a character. Characterize him. Witty, dynamic, effervescent, ebullient. Use your words. Stayed stodgy, holier than that. Stayed stodgy. Well, holier than thou. That well, that would be wrong. <laughs> I know. No, no, but no, no, no. It's a it's a nice idea because that might, in a sense, be what his willingness at first to go against Red Cross would indicate. Mm-hmm. Um, is a kind of holier than thouness. He would ask yourself how much he would approve of Book One of the Fairy Queen. Not at all. Why not? 
because Red Cross makes far too many errors out of his own weaknesses, then Guyon will ever admit that he could. Okay, good, nice. Then Guyon will ever admit that he could. So what Red Cross does in book one is he admits error. Is there anything corresponding to that in book two? Those of you who've gotten through at least Canto 10, um, what are some parallels? We already started looking at parallels between books one and book two. That is, that um, what parallels book, book one, um, Errors Maisie Den, um, in book two we find uh, with Guyon um, erroneously being holier than thou, let's say, and being willing to fight Red Cross, and then overcoming that first test, or seemingly overcoming it. Um, if we say that the tricky thing about error is that um, Red Cross thought he overcame error, but he was wrong, we might say that the tricky thing about um, book two is that Guyon thought he'd overcome his predilection to being holier than thou, um, but perhaps what we're getting in book two is he's saying, unlike the rest of you guys, I don't think I'm holier than thou. Um, and you see the paradox there, right? Um, so book one um, begins in paradox. Perhaps book two also begins in a, in a similar paradox. That is, it might be that error isn't only something that besets holiness, but that it besets all the virtues. Um, and that perhaps it besets temperance. It would make sense to say that error besets all the virtues because all the virtues have to have a certain amount of self-confidence. Um, this is what Milton will say in Aripagetica, which we'll read later, but partly in talking about Spencer, that the true warfaring Christian um, armed in the armor of God has self-confidence. But the downside of self-confidence is um, a, a um, um, disposition to error. Um, that is, unlike Hamlet, none of the knights in the Fairy Queen are extraordinarily careful before they do things. The knights in the Fairy Queen do do things, but they make mistakes. Um, this is, um, are any of you majoring or double majoring in econ? Um, so do you know who Thaler is? Okay, so Thaler's a Nobel Prize winner who, and this is, a, this is, a, this is an interesting thing, so I'll just say it. Um, if you look at baseball, um, and if you look at how third base coaching works on baseball, what you will see is that in the history of baseball, third base coaches have always been risk aversive. And what that means is that they will only send a runner to home if, tell the runner to try and, try and get to the plate, if they are something like 95% confident that the runner will make it home. Um, and, and you can tell that because, in fact, um, about 95% of the time, the third base coach um, gives a runner the green light. Does everyone know what I'm talking about here? Um, no okay, so what happens when you're trying to I score a run? Nothing about no, so you're just trying to get to home plate, but you okay. can stop on third base and be safe there until the next play. Um, but why don't they just try to get there? Because, it, because if they don't make it, they're out, and then they lose um, priority in the game. The so other then team it's gets better it. not to try. No. <laughs> so now, now you know all you need to know for what I'm about to say. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> um, which is that 95% that, um, of the time, um, if the third base coach gives a runner the green light, the runner will make it. 
and what that means then is that if you're a runner and the third base coach says go for home, you can be pretty confident that you'll make it. The problem is that um, if you hold up at third base, let's say they're two outs, just for um, which is something I think that they'll analyze. If they're two outs and you hold up at third, the odds that you're going to get home are at best 40% or so. That is, if you have a 300 hitter coming up after you, and there's also some chance for an error or a wild pitch or whatever, um, you have only about a 40% chance of making it home with two outs if you're held up at third. What that means is, if, is that a third base coach should be sending the runner home with a 50% chance that the runner is going to make it. Um, but third base coaches never do that. They only, send the, they only give runners the green light if there's almost certainty that the runner will make it. That loses games. Doing, take, making that decision loses games. If third base coaches thought about the odds differently, they would realize that it's better to take a 50-50 chance that a runner will make it than stop the runner and now make it only a 40-60 chance on the next, with the next batter up that the runner will make it. Um, however, any third base coach who tries to play it that way gets fired because what happens is the press and the fans and the management say, half the time he sends a runner home, the runner is out. He has no idea what's going on on the field. We need someone who really understands the odds that someone is going to get home. So if you really do understand the odds, you're going to get fired. Um, but what that means is that it's a good, it's a virtue not to be too frightened of error. That's what, what Thaler is essentially saying. That is that there are clear errors and there are errors which are subtler, which is trying not to make errors. Hamlet tries not to make any errors. Um, the knights in the Fairy Queen, that's one thing that you can't accuse them of, is being overly careful. And not being overly careful is a virtue. That's um, an important thing to know. If you are overly careful, you will never do anything. Um, because you can never be 100% certain that what you're doing is um, the right thing to do. And if all you're trying to do is make sure not to do anything wrong, you will never do anything at all. That's like SLE theory, second language acquisition. Oh, is it? Why? And why is E a acquisition? A, I mean. Okay. That's because I'm just a... Um, it's because if you're learning a second language, if you're too terrified to try anything in that target language, right. you'll okay, never good. learn it. Yeah, exactly. So you just you have to risk embarrassment. And these knights, they risk an awful lot of embarrassment. Um, they all look goofy at one point or another. Um, Red Cross has certainly looked goofy in, in um, book one. And Guyon, um, who the last thing in the world he wants to look like is goofy, is all the goofier for his desperate attempts never to be goofy. Um, and, but that's an important thing, is, is, um, is putting yourself in a position. So it may be that error besets all virtues, that um, trying to do something means you have to risk error. And learning from your mistakes, again like SLA, learning from your mistakes um, is the upside of error. That is, you learn something, you go deeper, you figure things out um, at a deeper level if you're not hyper-careful to begin with. And so it could be that not being hyper-careful, that's something that Red Cross and Guyon share. 
um, and that we'll see other nights sharing. And the one, one um, uh, result or precipitate of not being hyper-careful is that errors get made, um, and errors get made at the beginning of each book. So the error then that Guyon would make is the error in thinking that he is, um, that, um, that he would never make an error. The error in thinking that he's better than Red Cross because Red Cross made all those errors. Um, again, another way to bring this round is to say that it's always worthwhile considering what each individual knight would make, as the, make of the fairy queen as a whole. Um, because any objection that you can imagine an individual knight making, that is that um, Guyon would hate the story of Red Cross and would be disgusted with him if he knew the whole story, that Red Cross might think that Guyon was, what did you say, stodgy, stuck up? Stayed. Stayed, stuck up, all, all the ST words. <laughs> um, stupid, uh, stunningly... Stolid. Stolid. <laughs> um, strapped for, <laughs> I don't know, uh, strapped for standard um, uh, standards of sense, I don't know. Strapped uh, for savor. Strapped for savor? Okay. Yeah, because he's so porridge isn't he? Yeah, he is porridge That's a good word for it. Very good word. It's a technical word from literary theory. porridge <laughs> um, Yeah, that Red Cross would, would, would find him... Um, not the person he would want to be spending a lot of time with. Um, the one figure who might like the entirety of the Fairy Queen then would be who? Arthur. Arthur. Yeah, you could imagine, or maybe a way of thinking about Arthur is to imagine he would like the whole thing. Another way to bring this back historically is to say there's one other figure who is supposed to like the whole thing, who Spencer is betting and betting his entire professional life Gloriana. on. Gloriana, namely? Elizabeth. Elizabeth is supposed to like the whole thing. Um, and of course then, what you're going to see when we get to book five is that some of these, um, book five most clearly, but if you're reading the footnotes, which um, again, uh, don't, at least on your first reading The Fairy Queen, but if you're reading the footnotes, you'll see that a lot of these figures are based on people in um, Elizabeth's court or in Elizabethan politics. That is, there's a little bit of an Alice in Wonderland quality about this, which is that um, here in Fairyland, um, it's Spencer in Fairyland, and here in Fairyland, um, there are people who are connected to um, real people in the real world, not only Gloriana, um, but others. And um, Timius, for example. Um, and um, therefore, the question of the readership, which already comes up in the letter to Raleigh, um, the question of the readership of the Fairy Queen's attitude towards the whole of the poem is something that we can map into the poem. Anyhow, I think we can say probably that the person who would hate the poem the most of all the knights in the first six books is Guyon. Guyon just would not like the Fairy Queen from first to last. He would be against it. And um, that is a way of maybe describing what it is that we don't like about him, is that um, if you're reading the Fairy Queen, it's because you take pleasure in certain things. And poetry is supposed to give pleasure. That's almost definitional. 
about poetry. If it doesn't give pleasure, it's not a good poem. Um, there may be lots of poems that it takes a while to find pleasurable. You may say, oh my god, this is you know complete modernist dreck. How can anyone read the cantos and take pleasure from them? Um, <laughs> some people do read the cantos and take pleasure. Lots of people don't. The ones who do are the ones who think it's a, it's a great work. And the ones who don't are the ones who think that it's a, the fraudulent work of um, a, a brain-damaged um, Nazi sympathizer. Um, it's probably both. But, um, but there are poems that it's hard to take pleasure from. But if a poem, if it becomes impossible to take pleasure from a poem, it just isn't a good poem. Um, not everyone has to take pleasure from it, but poems have to give pleasure. So the Fairy Queen is really um, offering itself as pleasure giving. That's the first thing the letter to Raleigh says. He says, look, I could do this um, in what's a better way, which is philosophically, um, but people want pleasure. Um, they, don't, they don't want to just learn doctrine. They, want, they, they also need pleasure in order for them to care about learning the doctrine. And he says, therefore, using a very old idea, um, that the allegory, the dark conceit, the stories, the fairyland, and so on, all of that is so that people will, that's all sugar um, on the pill. Um, so the pill is sugared so that people will swallow it. And um, what really matters is the pill, he says, he says Raleigh. But I think that's obviously not what matters to us. And what makes the Fairy Queen a great poem is the sugar and not the pill. And to the extent that we spend some time talking about the pill, there are two reasons we do that. One is because um, it's part of the recipe that makes the sugar taste in just the particular and wonderful way that it does. Um, the pill affects the taste of the sugar, and the sugar is therefore um, designed through a kind of poetic version of molecular gastronomy to interact with the pill so that the sugar tastes even better with that pill. That's one reason to do it. Or what we might ask ourselves is, isn't this a little bit more like breakfast cereal? Isn't Spencer claiming that it's good for you, but in fact, isn't it just all junk? And, um, in, and I mean that in the best possible way. Poetry should be junk, um, should be junk food. And I think that that's actually um, probably going to turn out to be true about the Fairy Queen. That, that is, Spencer is saying there's a pill underneath this sugar, but I think the more you read, the more you'll wonder, is there really a pill underneath the sugar? Um, it certainly looks like there is in book one. It looks like there is in book two. It stops looking like that after um, book two. Um, after book two, it's, it starts looking like, with the possible exception of book five, it starts looking like um, you're only reading for the plot. And it's not that there isn't allegory going on. It's that the allegory is no longer about timeless things. It's that the allegorical issues, the abstractions, things like chastity and temperance and courtesy and so on, are interesting as characters. It's interesting when people have to think about what chastity means. Not because it tells you anything about chastity, but because it tells you about people who are thinking about those issues. Um, and I think that's what you'll see happening in um, at least half of The Fairy Queen, um, at least in books three, four, and six. Uh, book five is just so weird and, and strange that it's hard to know what to say about it. Um, 
And there are courses in the Fairy Queen that, believe it or not, will teach books one, two, three, four, and six, and just say, eh, book, book five, he's just lost his mind there. Um, <laughs> but I think book is, yeah, book, book five has a robot in it, um, <laughs> an autistic robot, basically, um, who, whenever the knight of book five, that is Artigal, thinks about sparing the life of someone, the robot, the robot is, in, is um, uh, has the dwarf slash palmer role that is he's the he's the squire um, to the knight and um, whenever the knight thinks he might do something humanly decent um, the robot just kind of pushes him out of the way and chops off someone's head um, and um, so it, it is kind of weird I, I think James Cameron should do something with it um, but book five is book five is uh, the hardest one to love, but it's very, very strange. Um, however, book two, it's Guyon who seems lo- robot-like. And the question is, is that a bug or a feature of the poem, that the, that the hero of book two is so robotic? Um, and you know my answer is always going to be it's a feature. Um, that question is always, um, for me, answered by no, it's a feature, not a bug. Um, it's something that Spencer is intentionally doing. So let's let's go back since we um, since I said we would have to go back to it. Let's go back to despair in book one, um, and then we'll go back uh, to book two. But again, the temptation to despair that you get in um, book one, um, Canto nine. Um, It's just it's just worth um, going through it. Just the more the the more number of times, the greater number of times that you read um, this poetry, um, the better for your life. The more enriched your life is. Um, so, but what I draw attention to is the fact that this is, um, I think, the most beautiful poetry in Book One of the Fairy Queen. And that's a category that I now want to offer, um, which is who or in what contexts do you get the fairy queen at its best as pure poetry? That's, in a way, a sort of question that's almost always not asked in any professional relationship to literature, in classes, in writing, and so on. That is, we're supposed to think that Um, the intensity and beauty of certain parts of a longer work, um, Hamlet soliloquies, Lear soliloquies, whatever, um, that's simply a feature, almost an accidental feature, of the fact that, let's say, Shakespeare was always writing as well as he could write, but in certain situations, the proper way to write um, was, was a way that we now find memorable. But I think in the Fairy Queen, it's something that we should be very explicit about. And a way to do this is to say that there are moments where I am going to claim, and I hope you'll at least consider this claim, where Spencer really wanted to put everything into the poetic part of the poem, make the poem, which is poetic from first to last, as intensely poetic as he could possibly make it. When people quote poetry, um, and this is something that goes 
you know, that, that, that goes back to the beginning of um, human culture is that someone will utter a poem, sing a poem, um, you know, up until the present day, up until the new Decemberist album. Someone will um, uh, hear a song and think, that moment, and that's the one that'll stay in your mind. Um, so you won't, know, you won't even know the whole song, but there's that one line that totally blows you away. Um, that goes all the way back to Homer. Um, and, you know, there are very, very famous passages in Homer. There are very, very famous passages in Virgil. Um, and generally what we think is, it's not that Homer was writing and he said, okay, now I'm going to write a passage that people are going to find famous and that people are going to quote far and wide. Homer was writing and sometimes he nailed it so amazingly well that that's what stood out for readers or hearers of the poem. Um, Virgil was writing, and he says in three words, sunt lacrimae rerum, um, and he just goes on. And if he had known that those three words were going to be like the three most famous words of the Aeneid, um, he would have been surprised, delighted, I'm sure, but he didn't think to himself, now these are the words that I'm going to be remembered for for all time, um, it's part of the flow of his writing. Um, and usually it's readers and critics and hearers and the general audience to which um, we ascribe the taking out of certain moments as particularly beautiful, as particularly powerful, as standalones in one way or another as things that you may not remember the rest of the words of a song, but you remember that line. And if you try to tell someone else, I think we've all had this experience, you try to tell someone else how great a line is, um, what you find yourself saying is it's, you know, um, something, 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 they're hypocrites, so fuck them too, something, something, something. Isn't that great? And if they, have no, if they don't know the, the song, they'll have no idea what you're talking about. But you'll feel it as something that's completely great. Um, that um, is our general attitude towards works of literature, that where they achieve their greatest power is something that readers or hearers or audiences or critics or let's just say in general the receivers of the work are the ones who've decided that, not the creator of the work. Shakespeare didn't say, okay, things are going to go along, blah, 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 until I write this really show-stopping speech here, which is what everyone is going to put in anthologies later. That's not how he's thinking. That's not how writers think. But Spencer does think that way. That's what I want to claim for this class. So that when he has despair tempting Red Cross, Spencer is writing, some people will say partially, that's fine, but Spencer is writing as intense, sad poetry about the nature of human life as he is capable of writing. And it's interesting that it's despair who gets that. Just as in Paradise Lost, it's interesting that Satan will get all the greatest speeches, that Milton will give the most intense writing that he is capable of, not to God, but to Satan. So, too, in The Fairy Queen, the most intense writing that Spencer is capable of is given to despair in book one. 
and it's given actually to the great, unbelievably great Carpe Diem song in The Bower of Bliss in Book 2. The song that, as you will see, or those of you who finished already see, Guyon and the Palmer don't even hear. But it's the best thing in Book 2 by far. So, um, here is Despair. Um, let's... Um, I'm just 38. Yeah, uh, that's where we got to, right? Mm -hmm. um, what frantic fit? Yeah, what frantic fit? Quoth he, that's despair speaking. Hath, this is page 155. Has thus distraught thee, foolish man, so rash a doom to give. What justice ever other judgment taught, but he should die, who merits not to live. None else to death this man despairing drive, but his own guilty mind deserving death. Is then unjust to each his due to give, or let him die that loatheth living breath, or let him die at ease that liveth here uneth or uneasily. Now notice something formal here, which is how despair first makes a kind of pointed argument. What justice ever other judgment taught, but he should die who merits not to live. And then he starts expanding that letting it just become hypnotically longer. Despair is a hypnotist. None else to death this man despairing drive, but his own guilty mind deserving death. What's happening in those two lines formally? What's, what do you notice about um, that's just... What gives those lines their feel? There's, a, there's an explicit answer to this, and I wonder if you see it. The alliteration. Okay, the alliteration, death... Despair, the last three words. Okay, mind deserving death. Good. So the alliteration kind of, kind of just gives it the sense of blurry extension. That's oral hypnotism, isn't it? That's oral hypnotism. Uh, what else? There's also death and this. That is, there's a second alliteration kind of playing around the first. Death, this. Um, what else? Yeah. Um, just the way the sentence is structured with... Or with death, uh, sort of very near the beginning, and death at the end, it's like a circular kind of. Logic. Exactly, exactly. Tennyson uses that. Tennyson gets this from Spencer. Tennyson will write in Spencerian stanzas, and he gets this from Spencer. Tennyson admired Spencer. That's right. None else to death, this man despairing drive, but his own guilty mind deserving death. Now, what you could say is, if this were being. Um, put as a kind of vigorous and strenuous argument, um, you wouldn't have that repetition of the word death. That is, it should be say, saying something like, um, none else to um, none else to death this man despairing drive, but his own guilty mind deserving punishment, or something like that. Uh, but it's the repetition of death there that's partly hypnotic. It starts with death and ends with death. He's driven to death because his own deserving mind or his own um, despairing mind made him realize that he was guilty and therefore deserving death. So death is the beginning and the end, which is what despair is always saying. Is then unjust to each his due to give, or let him die that loatheth living breath? So here the alliteration's there. And there again is dying again, or let him die that loatheth living breath, or let him die at ease 
that liveth here on Eve. So remember we talked about what to think about in the um, Alexandrine, the ninth 12-syllable line in every Spencerian stanza, that you can often pick out the two syllables that are making it longer. What are the two syllables that make it longer there? At in, ease. At ease. That's right. If it were not the last line, then the way you would tweak it is, or let him die that loatheth living breath, or let him die that liveth here on earth. But what does at ease do as it lengthens the line? Gives a feeling of peace. Gives a feeling of peace, and it's all... The way Keats is going to remember this is, in his Ode to a Nightingale is he's going to say, um, full many a time I have been half in love with easeful death, have called on him in many a mused rhyme to take into the air my quiet breath. And Keats is thinking of this moment in the Ode to a Nightingale. That is, easeful death. Um, that's what despair is offering, easeful death. At the end of Antony and Cleopatra, Octavius is going to hear that Cleopatra has pursued conclusions infinite of easy ways to die. So basically, what Spencer is saying, here's despair. Despair makes death seem easy. Despair makes the attraction of an easy death almost irresistible. So, and that's what despair is doing. Or let him die that loatheth living breath, or let him die at ease. So there you get those repetitions, or let him die, or let him die, but the second or let him die says it's not hard. Or let him die that loatheth living breath, or let him die at ease that liveth here on earth. There's actually a movie of an English professor who um, is despairing, and he opens up his copy of Spencer and reads this, and um, then decides to commit suicide. So it's uh, it's only a movie, um, but you could imagine what the movie is saying is you know Spencer has written such good lines for despair that they could actually be dangerous to people. Um, this this pro suicide moment um, in Book One of the Fairy Queen, and then he goes on, who travels by the weary wandering way? What do we call that? Alliteration again, to come unto his wished home in haste and meets a flood that doth his passage stay, is not great grace to help him overpassed or free his feet that in the mire stick fast? So he says, here's, here's, a, here's an, a fable, an example of someone who's trying to get home but gets stuck by, some, by something in the way. Isn't it the right thing to do to help them get home? So what does home mean here in this little parallel? Death, yeah. So it's almost as though what he's saying is, yeah, home is death. And he no longer has to even say it. He's so good at subliminally getting the idea that, yeah, to die is to go home. And that's where you want to be, not on the weary, wandering way. So isn't it good to help him or free his feet that in the mire stick fast? Most envious man that grieves at neighbor's good. So now he's accusing Red Cross of a, of a sin, namely envy. Look, you envy him. He's, he's got something good, and you envy him. 
most envious man that grieves at neighbor's good, and fond, the joyest in the woe thou hast, why wilt thou let him pass? Why wilt not let him pass that long hath stood upon the bank, yet wilt thyself not pass the flood? So you're not crossing, but get out of his way. But the idea is, or maybe you want to cross too. And then, he there does now enjoy eternal rest. So remember, that's what Spencer prays for at the end of the mutability cantos that we started with. That is, when all things steadfast rest upon the pillars of eternity. Now, God, that is now, thou that art the God of Sabbath height, oh, that great Sabbath God, grant me that Sabbath sight. He there does now enjoy eternal rest and happy ease, which thou dost want and crave, and further from it daily wanderest. What if some little pain the passage hath that makes frail flesh to fear the bitter wave? Is not short pain well born that brings long ease and lays the soul to sleep in quiet grave? Sleep after toil, port after stormy seas, ease after war, death after life does greatly please. So again, notice all the uses of ease in that stanza. Um, brings long ease, um, ease after war, death after life, happy ease in line two, and sleep. The knight much wondered at his sudden wit and said, the term of life is limited, nay, man, nay may a man prolong nor shorten it, the soldier may not move from watchful stead nor leave his stand until his captain bed. So he's got he's to keep working, he's not allowed to withdraw from the fight too soon. Who life did limit? By almighty doom, quoth he, this is, um, this is still Red Cross speaking, um, um, so, I'm sorry, quoth he there means, yeah, I was, puzzled, I was puzzling myself for a moment, quoth he means now despair, despair is speaking again. Who life did limit by almighty doom, quoth he, quoth despair, knows best the terms established, and he that points the sentinel his room doth license him depart at sound of morning. Room. So if someone says you can go, you can go to sleep now, then it's okay for you to do it. Is not his deed, whatever thing is done in heaven and earth, did not he all create to die again? So now, despair's second moment of temptation is to say, look what life is. Everything that's alive dies. To be alive means you're going to die. You should despair about that fact. If you're against dying right now, what should make you want to die is the fact that you're mortal and that death is inevitable. How could you want that? To, 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 to be a living thing, since what it means to be a living thing is to be doomed to die. Did not he all create to die again? All ends that was begun, their time in his eternal book of fate are written sure and have their certain date. Who then can strive with strong necessity that holds the world in his still in his still changing in his still changing state, or shun the death ordained by destiny when hour of death is come, let none ask whence nor why. So it's the hour of your death. Don't resist it. He's saying again, don't resist it. You shouldn't ask whence or why. You know you're mortal. And then 
the longer life despair goes on, I quote, the greater sin. The greater sin, the greater punishment. All those great battles which thou boasts to win through strife and bloodshed and avengement, now praised, hereafter dear thou shalt repent, for life must life and blood must blood repay. Is not thy evil life forspent? Is not enough thy evil life forspent? For he that once hath missed, for he that once hath missed the right way, the further he doth go, the further he doth stray. And again, notice what he's doing with the long lines. And notice here what he's saying is, everything you do in the Fairy Queen is sinful. You're causing pain. You're fighting enemies, and they may be evil, but fighting against them is also sinful. And so he says, so don't go any further. The further he doth go, the further he doth stray, then do no further go, no further stray. He picks up on that last line. But here lie down, and to thy rest betake, the ill to prevent that life ensue in May, so prevent other ill things that will happen. For what hath life that may it love it make? How could you love life to begin with? What does it have that would make you love it? And gives not rather cause it to forsake. And so here's a list of human life. Fear, sickness, age, loss, labor, sorrow, strife, pain, hunger, cold that makes the heart to quake, and ever fickle fortune rageth rife, all which and thousands more do make a loathsome life. So that's a pretty stunning two-line summary of human life. Um, I really like those very short summaries of life. Beckett has one um, where Malone and Malone dies talks about um, how he wanted to, um, how he's thinking about what life was, and then he just kind of throws off to love, to eat, to escape the redressers of wrongs. Um, that's, that's a summary of human life. To love, to eat, to escape the redressers of wrongs. Um, thou wretched man, he then says, thou, you in particular, Red Cross, wretched man of death, hast greatest need. If in true balance thou wilt weigh thy state, for never knight the dared warlike deed, more luckless disadventures did a mate. Witness the dungeon deep, wherein of late thy life shut up, for death so oft did call. And though good luck prolonged hath thy date, yet death then with the like mishaps forestall. So death could rescue you right now, just the way Arthur had to rescue you from Orgoglio. You don't have to worry about falling into any more dungeons if you just die. Otherwise, into the which hereafter thou mayest happen fall. Why then? And here's everything Red Cross has done wrong, is what despair is listing now. And this is where you can see that this is, dis that this is Red Cross's inner voice that's speaking. How does despair know all this? Well, because despair is Red Cross's despair. Why then dost thou, O man of sin, desire to draw thy days forth to their last degree? Is not the measure of thy sinful hire high heap it up with huge iniquity against the day of wrath to burden thee? Aren't you going to be punished on judgment day? Is not enough that to this lady mild thou falsehood has thy fate with perjury and sold thyself to serve Duessa Viled, with whom in all abuse thou hast thyself defiled? Is not he just 
that all this doth behold. So notice despair is making God a reason to despair, God's anger and punishment. Is not he just that all this doth behold from highest heaven and bears an equal eye? Shall he thy sins up in his knowledge fold and guilty be of thine impiety? So are you going to ask God to forgive you and make him guilty of what you've done wrong? Milton's God will say of why he has to punish Adam and Eve. He says, die he or justice must. If I forgive them, then I will be doing damage to justice. Die he or justice must. Shall he thy sins up in his knowledge fold and guilty be of thine impiety? Is not his law let every sinner die? Die shall all flesh. What then must needs be done? Is it not better to do willingly? That is what needs to be done. Shouldn't you do it willingly? And show that you, you respect God who wants you to die for your sins? Who is going to make you die for your sins anyhow? Then linger. Is it not better to do willingly than linger till the glass be all outrun? Death is the end of woes. Die soon, O fairy's son. And that's the end of his temptation, but it's unbelievably good poetry. Julian? Um, it's interesting to look at this uh, in kind of side by side with Ecclesiastes, where we have a text yep. that also calls for, well, just claims everything is vain. And, yes. And it, it also kind of, you know, suggests to roll over and die, but... Yeah. Uh, but Ecclesiastes ends on, a, I guess, in relation to this, on a, on a positive note, where there is a purpose, you know, serve God, and, and that is kind of, that is man's duty. But um, Yeah, and that's what Una's going to say, too. That's a, it's a good, a good comparison. Right. Um, remember, though, Ecclesiastes, I think I mentioned this last term, Ecclesiastes is the only book in the Bible that ends with the word evil. Um, and this was so shocking. If you ever see, did people know about Ecclesiastes? Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity and striving after the wind. The sun also riseth, Ooh! and the sun also setteth and hasteneth to the place where he ariseth again. Um, and to everything there is a season. That's all Ecclesiastes. So it's the only book that ends with the word evil. And this so shocked the, um, the rabbis that in um, Hebrew versions of the Old Testament, what you will find is that the second verse, the second to last verse of Ecclesiastes, the penultimate, which you all know means second to last, um, at least you do now, the penultimate verse of Ecclesiastes is repeated in small type after the um, poem ends, I mean after the book ends. It's repeated again in small type so that it shouldn't end with the word evil because that would just be too much. In Herman Melville's um, The Confidence Man, Melville adored Spencer, by the way. I thought of bringing in the um, introduction to his Piazza Tales, where he just talks about how he's trying to do what Spencer did. Um, but in The Confidence Man, the, there's a figure who's more or less the figure of despair, who is the confidence man in that book. Um, and uh, he likes quoting Ecclesiastes to people to get them to despair. So yeah, that's a, that's a, good, that's a really good call. Uh, yeah, what Red Cross has to learn is not to be um, taken in by these blandishments, but the blandishments are also where the beauty of the poem is. And um, the beauty, it's almost as though Spencer is saying what makes you like poetry is what makes you dally with despair in life, in real life. And um, those are things that have to be um, noticed and thought through and maybe risked in a poem like The Fairy Queen. Um, I was going to have us look at um, the song that Mirth sings to Guyon.
uh, when he's on her boat, which is another incredibly beautiful moment. But what you should pay attention to for Wednesday is the Bower of Bliss. I mean, finish book two, remember there'll be a quiz, um, but pay attention to the Bower of Bliss and the lovely lay that is sung in the Bower of Bliss. Um, okay, see you then. On the boat or on the island? Because that's the one where she says, you know, all the ladies and, you know, she, she, she brings up Matthew, right? Yeah. Um, but they're on their way to the island, aren't they, when she sings no, it? I, think I could be wrong. Island. I could be wrong. I think they're on the island already. Okay, I'll check again. I thought it was on the way, but I will certainly check again. I was going to say that the, the death is easy thing is the whole thesis of the 